Well, good afternoon from Washington, D.C. My name is Ryan Bourne. I occupy the R. Evan Schaff Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics here at Cato. And welcome to the first webinar on the pandemic, the economics um, of lockdowns. We live in extraordinary times, and it's clear that we're now in the middle of a sustained global health and economic crisis. Just today, we learned that in the past three weeks, 16.6 million Americans have filed for unemployment insurance. Uh, by some estimates, uh, GDP, if it was annualized, put on an annualized basis, has fallen by around uh, 30% right now. Across the globe, we're seeing uh, similar trends. And in the last day or so, it seems that the, the, uh, the daily death rate associated with this terrible virus has increased to nearly 2,000 Americans per day. Now, in reaction to that health crisis, uh, one of the key policy steps that uh, state governors and, and mayors and localities have taken is to impose quite restrictive lockdowns on economic activity. Uh, they've put in place stay-at-home and shelter-in-place orders, uh, and they've uh, issued orders too for the closure of supposed non-essential businesses. Three-quarters of Americans currently find themselves in some form of lockdown. And I think it's fair to say that initially, most economists seem pretty receptive to the idea that because of the large uncertainties uh, that we're seeing with respect to this virus and the potential huge loss of life, given what some of the uh, epidemiological models were saying. Uh, economists seem quite receptive to the idea that we might need suppressive measures in the short term to get to grips with this virus. In the past week or so, though, what we've, what we've seen is some dissent bubbling. Uh, people are now recognizing that such is the um, economic destruction being wrought, not just by uh, the lockdowns themselves, but changes in consumer behavior that continuing on this path for any length of time uh, could have severe implications for societal and economic well-being. Um, these, uh, these crude shutdowns, which close uh, a lot of low-risk and high-risk activities, uh, risk having escalating economic costs over time. And people are starting to ask the question, what is the optimal length of the shutdown and what might an exit strategy be not just in, in terms of dealing with the public health crisis such that we can get back to a, a normalized economy um, as, as much as possible, um, but also you know, some sort of strategy to um, alleviate some of the restrictions of the lockdown such that we get on a flight path to a degree of economic normality in the shorter term too. Now, economists tend to be well-placed to think about these issues because we have tools that we usually use to, to weigh up particular trade-offs of certain things, uh, health effects, uh, economic effects, uh, social welfare effects that come from beyond economic output too. Uh, and in that regard, I'm delighted today to be joined by three economists that have been thinking deeply about this issue and have, have published on this issue over the past few weeks. Um, so first of all, I've got John Cochran with us. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and adjunct uh, scholar at the the great think tank, the Cato Institute, and whose writing has been indispensable uh, during this, both in the pages of the Wall Street Journal opinion pages, and also on his blog, uh, The Grumpy Economist. Um, next, I'm joined by Anna Sherbina, uh, Associate Professor of Finance at Brandeis University, a visiting scholar at our friends at AEI. And she was the author of a recent paper, Determining the Optimal Duration of the COVID-19 Suppression, a Cost-Benefit Analysis. Last but by no means least, I'm joined by Emil Werner, Associate Professor of Finance at MIT and author of Pandemics Depress the Economy, Public Health Interventions Do Not, 
evidence from the 1918 flu. Each of the speakers are going to outline their broad thoughts about where we are and the economics of lockdowns initially. Uh, the great thing about this platform is that all of you guys can contribute with your questions uh, through the Slido at the side of the of the the video screen on the on the Cato page, and uh, you can get involved with the debate uh, using the hashtag Cato Econ on on Twitter too. So I'm first going to pass over to John Cochran for his thoughts about the economics of lockdowns. Uh, thanks. It's a, a pleasure to be here, um, and, and uh, thanks for inviting me to share my thoughts. Um, so let me start with an unusual thought. We're actually lucky. <laughs> uh, we live in the age of pandemics. Our globalized, urbanized economy is just an invitation to evolution. Uh, we've seen MERS, SARS, H1N1, Ebola, and AIDS. Um, and I think we will see more. Uh, this one was just bad enough to wake us up in the way the other ones have did not. But um, there are many worse out there. Um, the evolution and the virus don't care if one, 10, or 30% of us die from it. It just wants to pass it on. <clears throat> so one with this, this relatively low death rate compared to like cholera, uh, the plague, um, and uh, the other things that have hit us, I think in the end will be, I hope, enough to wake us up. We were shockingly unprepared. There, the failure here was the failure of our low-level bureaucracy. Uh, of the World Health Organization, the FDA, the CDC, uh, and, and you don't—you can just begin to think of all the screw-ups uh, that that kept us from the appropriate response. I don't want to personalize it. It was always thus. It was this way around the world. Uh, only South Korea and uh, Singapore and Taiwan seem to have had a, a reasonable response. It was thus at Pearl Harbor. It was thus in 9/11. <clears throat> well. Let this be the lesson to not get caught the next time when a 10% fatality one comes through. The economic lockdown is a panic button. It's the emergency. It's what you do when it's completely gotten out of control. There's a danger, though, that we start to think of this as the normal response. Because, as always, how we fought the last one becomes the new norm. No, this was a preventable disaster. And uh, we have to make sure that the response is to not do this again. How do you fight this right? You fight it early, hard, and fast. You test, you trace, you isolate, you lock down the hotspots. You don't shut down an entire economy. Um, but we, we were not even taking temperatures. Uh, just now, we've woken up to find out that we don't have masks. The greatest industrial economy in the world is falling apart because we don't have five-cent face masks. This doesn't need a big presidential plan and leadership. This needs a well-worked-out and oiled low-level bureaucracy. The president doesn't sit at the exit of uh, at the entrance to airports and take your temperature. The key is, as always, to get the reproduction rate below one. Then it dies off. Uh, an important insight is that reproduction rate is not fixed in the virus. It's fixed a lot in human behavior, and it varies tremendously. We don't all have a reproduction rate of two. So the economic key is to stop the people and activities, the, the, huge, the, the small tail of enormously dangerous people and activities, um, not to stop absolutely everything. You, you want to stop the, the things that cause the highest danger at the lowest economic cost. Uh, and we, we've sort of realized that, duh. 
uh, that's what uh, that's what isolating is about. The people who are sick are more likely to trade to spread it than the people who are not sick. Uh, group big group activities, crowded bars and clubs. Yeah, that's more dangerous. But that principle needs to be applied more generally, and that's what the detailed test, trace, contact trace, shutdown hotspots, put out the embers, standard public health is is about. Uh, not shut down everything, not decide what's essential and doesn't. Essential turns out to be about a half, and then we're not really paying that much attention to the essential. They're, they're, still, they're still not wearing face masks at grocery stores. Having failed, we've locked everything down, and this is posing an immense and needless economic cost. The longer the lockdown lasts, the more it will be permanent. If you stop everything for one or two weeks, that we could call that the great vacation. Uh, you stop, but then everything is prepared to get going right where it was. The problem is that the debt clock does not turn off. And as weeks and months go by, jobs are permanently lost, businesses are permanently shuttered, those productive activities aren't there, and what could be a V-shaped recovery turns into an L-shaped recovery. And even in the V-shaped scenario, there's going to be a big shift in demand for what people want in the future. Uh, we'll, we'll, the viruses will be with us for a while and life will be different. So um, what we need now to get is to get the economy going. Um, and let's realize this won't end soon. Um, there will be lots of uh, inf uninfected people in the US. There will be a reservoir around the world. The virus is ready to start up again anywhere and, and, until you get a vaccine that vaccines everybody on the planet, which is uh, years away. Uh, it's ready to start, start up again. The U.S. tends to sort of dream of a, a uh, tech will come save us. Every day there will be a cheap test. A vaccine will come. Yes, eventually, but not now. Now what we need is that component that was missing in January. Uh, the cost is a trillion dollars a month. <laughs> we don't need reopen versus lockdown. We need to reopen smart. We need that combination of an economic and public health plan and the bureaucratic competence to execute it. Uh, testing, tracing, putting out the embers, locking down the hotspots. Uh, it's not something the president does. It's something that has to be done at the local level. Um, macro policies, what we're fighting with now, is a river of federal cash. There's this tendency, like, like a two-year-old with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and to fight the last war. So we're fighting 2008. We're spending right now uh, $2 trillion. Eventually, the forecasts are $6 trillion of direct borrowing. Um, that all has to be paid back. And it's immensely inefficient. Just as one example, the $1,000 checks that are going to every citizen. Well, they're going to 60 million Social Security recipients, those who have government jobs, those who have government pensions. Uh, all our plans have the big disincentives that will slow down the recovery that they had before. As one example, we're paying people more to stay home than they get from working. Uh, reasonable perhaps for a week or two, but not in the fall when you're trying to restart an economy. Our Fed is literally printing up $5 trillion of money to hand it out, propping up prices so that no investor has to take a big loss. And I wonder where is the 2008 populist outrage at this? Well, not now, we're fighting an emergency, but that is and should come. And as usual, there's massive disincentives to all this. If we bail out industrial companies and airlines, like we bailed out the big banks in 2008, really bailing out their stockholders and bondholders, 
Um, does that mean they're allowed to rack up big debts again? Does that mean financial markets are perpetually like a four-year-old on a bicycle needing the Federal Reserve to step in every time prices uh, threaten to go down? Are we going to Dodd-Frank regulate everything in the wake of this? So please, this, this can't go on. <laughs> uh, and we can't wait for our government. We, we At least let's look forward and not wait for the debt crisis to hit the U.S. Uh, we have to do things a little bit efficiently and not normalize this as the, as the response. So we got to get through the summer, which needs us to reopen smart. Uh, we need to get through the fall, which means to turn off uh, the, the, the natural ideas of too much stimulus and the policies that keep the economy from going again. And then absolutely, next time we need to get ready for the next time. Uh, we need to fight this next time with a competent public health uh, uh, program, not an economic catastrophe. Build that competent bureaucracy. And let's not forget, in fact, you know, the country and California did have plans uh, on what to do. And but we let those stockpiles vanish. California had mobile hospitals. Jerry Brown defunded them to save five million and instead spent 80 billion on a high speed train. Uh, no, let's at least hope the memory that this is bad enough. The memory stays with us that we can hit the next one properly with the public health, combined public health economics interventions, uh, and not let it spread to a big uh, lockdown. Great, thank you very much, John. Now I'm gonna pass it over to Anna. Okay, thank you, Ryan, and thank you very much uh, for including me. Uh, so I agree with John, this uh, coronavirus poses an unprecedented threat to the US economy and the normal way of life. This virus is highly contagious and, high, and very deadly. So I ran some estimations and without doing anything, just letting the pandemic take its course, this uh, disaster will cost the US economy over nine trillion, which is about 40% of US GDP. And the cost will come from the loss of productivity for people who are sick, or taking care of their relatives who are sick, the cost of medical intervention, and the value of lives that we will end up losing. So we know that doing nothing is not an option. We must intervene. So I have read this very influential Imperial College paper by Ferguson and co-authors, and it outlines two types of non-pharmaceutical interventions, suppression and mitigation. Suppression aims to drastically reduce human contact to achieve a reduction in the number of new cases. And uh, mitigation is something less drastic, so it just aims to slow the natural spread of the virus by limiting human interactions to some extent, isolating vulnerable populations such as the elderly, and engaging in some kind of quarantining, contact tracing, et cetera. So suppression, as I said, involves really a drastic limitation of the number of people you would meet so that the chance to pass on the virus is reduced. And this is what we're doing right now through the economic lockdown by shutting down, closing schools, universities, um, forbidding um, community gatherings, um, really encouraging people to work from home, uh, not go out, not meet in large groups. That's what we're trying to achieve, a reduction in the number of new infections. 
and it seems to be working. And uh, after the suppression phase is, is lifted, we will go to a so-called mitigation phase where we will still be, um, as John said, quarantining, doing surveillance, doing contact tracing, isolating, measuring temperatures, etc. So this will be the mitigation phase. And if you read this um, policy paper, the roadmap to reopening by former FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb and his co-authors, that maps into his uh, four phases of dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. So suppression phase is phase one, where we try to get control of the new cases, limit the number of new infections. And uh, mitigation is phase two, where we still engage in some interventions to slow down the spread. Then once the vaccine comes is phase three, the vaccination phase. And phase four will be rebuilding our capacities and preparing for the next possible pandemic. So uh, we all know that suppression is very, very costly. But I did some estimations in my paper, and I actually calculate that suppression can achieve enormous economic benefits, net of costs. And the value of those benefits could be up to $4 trillion because if it's done correctly, it will be able to really limit the number of new infections uh, now and in the future and reduce drastically the number of deaths. So suppression policy works in three ways. First, um, I assume like uh, a lot of people right now are saying, a lot of medical professions, professionals, a vaccine will be become available at some point in the future or some kind of effective medical treatment will become available uh, about 18 months from now. So that's an assumption that I make. And suppression by limiting and uh, reducing the number of new cases will push the rise of the pandemic curve further out in time. And the closer it pushes the pandemic curve to the time that vaccine becomes available, the more it can reduce the number of infections and the number of people dying from this virus. So that's the first way in which suppression is working. The second way, if we are able to reduce the number of new infections through suppression, we can become much more effective during the mitigation phase because it would be much easier to quarantine people, to do contact tracing of people who are infected if we have fewer cases. So we will get a better control of the path of the infection. And third, which is currently outside of my model, is that, uh, as John said, we're kind of unprepared right now to deal with so many infections. So by allowing ourselves all-stars more time, we will have some time to build the ICU beds capacity. We will have time to get ventilators. And through all of those actions, we will be able to reduce the fatality ratio of this infection. So uh, I also run some estimations on what is the optimal duration of the separation policy before we can start reopening the economy and adopting those mitigation measures. And uh, of course, there are a lot of unknowns about the spread of the virus, how effective those different policies will turn out to be. And the optimal time to reopening the economy depends on the effectiveness of the suppression policy that we have right now, and also how effective we think that mitigation will be in the future. 
So the more effective the suppression stage right now, the sooner we can uh, reopen the economy, the more effective we think the mitigation will be at reducing the spread of the virus, the sooner we can reopen the economy. And obviously, the higher the cost of the current lockdown, the sooner we should optimally reopen the economy. So I do different sets of estimations with different parameters. Under my more optimistic assumptions, I get the result that we should keep the lockdown in place for another 11 to 12 weeks. With the less optimistic, more pessimistic assumptions, I get the estimate that we should keep the lockdown in place for perhaps another 19 weeks. And one could imagine that you could put even more pessimistic assumptions in place, then the optimal lockdown period could be even longer. And I must caveat the results by saying that there are a lot of unknowns and they use a very simple pandemic model. So uh, the bottom line is that policymakers, when they're thinking about when is the optimal time to reopen the economy, they should be really doing this cost benefit analysis and their decisions should be driven by data rather than by an impulse. So in addition, we should be very carefully thinking about maybe there are some alternatives to what we're doing right now that could be done cheaper. So we could achieve better results during the lockdown phase and we could achieve better results through the mitigation phase by not imposing such costs on the economy. So for example, through the widespread testing, we should be able to find and isolate people who are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. And we will be able to identify people who are already immune. So those people who are already immune, they should be free to go back and participate in the economy and perhaps perform critical functions in the economy. People who are young and healthy and who perhaps live alone and are unlikely to pass on the virus to others, perhaps they should also be given some freedom to rejoin the economy. Likewise, um, if people in their workplace can work at a safe distance from others, for example, in the construction industry, perhaps they could go back to work. So all of those measures, uh, uh, alternatives to what we are having in place right now, and all of those measures we should be thinking about very carefully because they would allow us to achieve the same objectives of reducing the spread of the virus at lower economic costs. Um, now, Emil. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It's really a pleasure to be with uh, you all. So I wanted to take the opportunity today to talk a bit about some research that I recently re released with uh, Sergio Correa and Stefan Luck, who are both at the Federal Reserve. Uh, and of course, the standard disclaimer uh, applies that these are our views and not the views of, of the Fed. Um, what we do in the paper is we look at the experience of the United States during the 1918 flu pandemic and the associated public health interventions across cities and states in the US to try to understand what the impact of pandemics are on the economy or of a very severe pandemic, and also how to think about the economic impact of public health interventions like social distancing. So just to give you a sense of the 1918 flu pandemic, this was a really severe pandemic. It killed an estimated 550 to 670,000 Americans, about 0.7% of the US population, and an estimated 50 million people worldwide. Let me just read a quote uh, from the time uh, that might sound very familiar uh, to us who are reading the newspaper every day today. The quote goes, in some parts of the country, 
the pandemic has caused a decrease in production of approximately 50%. There never has been in this country, so the experts say, so complete domination by an epidemic as has been the case with this one. This is from the Wall Street Journal in October of 1918. And actually we went through and read a lot of old newspapers and it's quite striking how similar uh, the discussion was back then to the experience that we're having uh, today. So our paper has two main takeaways that's summarized by the title. Uh, Pandemics depress the economy, public health interventions do not. Evidence from the 1918 flu. So let me just provide some details on these two results. Our first result is that not surprisingly, we find by comparing areas that were more and less severely affected by the 1918 flu, that those areas that were more severely affected in terms of higher mortality see a sharp and persistent decline in economic activity. So just to give you a concrete example, a place like a state like Pennsylvania that was significantly uh, more severely affected than a place like Minnesota experiences a relative decline in manufacturing employment, in employment to population, uh, in output, uh, but also in bank balance sheets and in the stock of consumer durables uh, compared to less affected places throughout the country. In more affected places, we also see uh, that banks have to realize uh, higher uh, loan losses reflected by an increase in loan charge-offs due to the fact that households and businesses in these places are defaulting due to the uh, due to the decline in economic activity. In terms of magnitudes, what we find is that in the typical state that was affected uh, in 1918, we see a roughly 18% decline in manufacturing output. And what's interesting and, and perhaps also concerning is that we actually find that the effects are quite persistent. So areas that were more severely affected in 1918 and early 1919 lag behind areas that were less affected through 1923. So this looks more like a U or even an L-shaped recovery than a V-shaped recovery that we might hope for. Our second result is that we examine the economic impact of public health interventions known as non-pharmaceutical interventions. So what we did was we built on the epidemiology literature and compared outcomes in major cities that reacted very quickly and aggressively through these public health interventions to those that reacted less aggressively. So what's interesting is that these non-pharmaceutical public health interventions that were implemented in 1918 resemble many of the policies that we've been using today to reduce the spread of COVID-19. So these include school closures, church closures, theater closures, public gathering bans, and also quarantine of suspected cases, uh, as well as hygiene and, and guidance on mask wear. Um, so these interventions are similar although not quite as extreme as what we're seeing in some parts of the United States today. So that's something important to keep in mind. What we find uh, is that areas that are more aggressive in their use of non-pharmaceutical interventions experience lower uh, cumulative mortality, consistent with what the epidemiology literature has found. So we know that these policies work in terms of reducing uh, the health impact of a pandemic. Surprisingly, what we also found is that areas that were more aggressive in their use of non-pharmaceutical interventions did not perform worse economically in the year around the pandemic. And in fact, if anything, cities that intervened earlier and more aggressively actually come out of the pandemic perhaps even slightly stronger than those that intervened less aggressively. Uh, so just to give a concrete example, a city like Philadelphia 
that's been talked about a lot, was relatively slow uh, in introducing these non-pharmaceutical interventions and saw quite high mortality in the 1918 flu. So about 900 individuals per 100,000 died uh, from influenza-related uh, causes. A city like Cleveland in the next state over was much uh, more aggressive and introduced these non-pharmaceutical interventions in a much timelier fashion. So they acted about two weeks faster than Philadelphia. They saw lower mortality, so a death rate of about 590 per 100,000 compared to Philadelphia's over 900. Uh, and actually, the economy in Cleveland didn't perform worse than in Philadelphia coming out of the pandemic. If anything, it performed better. Now, these results uh, might seem quite counterintuitive, and at first they were quite counterintuitive to us. Um, so what, what explains them? Well, the reason is essentially uh, that NPIs uh, have direct and indirect effects. So the direct effect of the NPIs is the intuitive uh, effect that we would expect, which is the, the effect that they would have you know, in normal times, right? NPIs like social distancing are in normal times, of course, bad for the economy. They limit you know, interactions that are necessary for economic activity to take place. But in a pandemic, as we found uh, in, in our first result, the pandemic itself is just so destructive for the economy. People don't want to go out and consume. People don't want to work uh, as much. Uh, businesses cut back on investment uh, and so on in an environment where there's so much disruption, so much uncertainty, and a risk of, 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 of contracting the virus. So NPIs can actually be good for the economy, at least in the medium run, because they target the root cause of the crisis, which is the spread of the disease itself and the increase uh, in mortality risk. So in this way, these non-pharmaceutical public health interventions can have an indirect positive effect that may outweigh the direct negative effect of the lockdown precisely because they combat the virus. So, in the last few minutes, uh, let me just talk a little bit about, you know, what implications does this have for today? Um, one thing we really want to emphasize is that there are important differences between 1918 and today. Uh, perhaps most importantly, the 1918 flu pandemic uh, was significantly deadlier, uh, especially for prime age or working age individuals. Um, and that suggests that the economic merits of non-pharmaceutical interventions uh, might, be, might have been stronger in 1918 than they are today. On the other hand, there's some other factors that suggest that the economic merits of these public health interventions are stronger today. Um, so for example, behavioral responses to uh, the coronavirus might be stronger today just because the pandemic in many ways seems more salient than it was at the time. Um, and a less deadly virus can still cause major economic disruption uh, just through these behavioral effects. Similarly, and as Anna and John have already alluded to, you know, technology should allow us to be able to do much better than in 1918. We should be able to do testing and tracing and to use other forms of technology to get a sense of, you know, where the disease uh, is spreading uh, most rapidly uh, and to intervene more aggressively there. And that should allow us to, to, to implement smarter MPIs. Um, so just to conclude here, what I wanna say is that this notion that we necessarily have face a trade-off between you know, well-calibrated public health interventions on the one hand, and the economy on the other hand, uh, is not necessarily true. It's more complicated than that. And the reason is that we really have to defeat the disease before the economy can go back to normal. And that's, that's the main lesson from 1918. Thanks.
Thank you very much, Emil. I mean, one of the things I was struck by looking at a Financial Times chart yesterday was um, across the world, almost irrespective of whether countries have the sorts of lockdown policies that the United States uh, states and governors are implementing, um, the economic contraction looked huge and quite similar across countries, whereas the death rates vary quite substantially. So that kind of speaks on the face of it to the idea that um, failures in public health are a kind of bigger determinant of our overall economic welfare than, than perhaps even, even the lockdowns. Um, I've got a bunch of questions here from our audience already, so I'll get going with some of those um, now. Uh, the first one's to Anna. Um, this question comes from Andrea. She says, you mentioned that gathering data is key to, to accurate cost-benefit analysis in the future. Um, apart from widespread testing, which you mentioned, what other sorts of data might be prioritized in order to help in that regard? Okay, thank you very much for this question, Andrea. So there are a lot of data that we would like to have for the model, but we still don't have. So for example, we don't really know how well we're going to be doing the mitigation, how well we're going to be doing during the mitigation stage in terms of slowing down the spread of the virus. And if we think that we could achieve very high efficiencies, for example, by being able to identify new cases quite quickly, tracing all the contacts, all the people that the infected person came into contact with, then we could uh, really be very good at um, during the mitigation stage and we could actually stop suppression sooner relative to the case that mitigation is not going to be that effective and the number of new cases will build up relatively quickly. In that case, we may actually go to another lockdown, which is much, much less efficient than just getting it right in the first place and getting it to the point that we could do mitigation very, very well. Another thing that we should be uh, getting better in terms of identifying pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic people or stopping asymptomatic transmission. Because right now people actually pretty much know what the symptoms are and they can self-isolate when they get those symptoms. But the problem is the data shows that perhaps up to 40% of people who are infected don't have any symptoms. So then they go on and infect others. So if we could uh, get better at testing and at identifying those people early, that would really help us tremendously during the mitigation stage. Or perhaps the face masks, that's a solution that, that uh, you know, could really stop asymptomatic uh, infection. And that's something that we should keep in mind when we decide what is the optimal duration of the suppression period. Great, thanks, Anna. Uh, the next question is for John. Um, this is from Larry White, uh, NYU Stern. He says, Exante, how many how many warnings of future bad events were being made over the past 20 years? And uh, John, you mentioned that we should have prepared for this better. How can we possibly protect against all of the different potential future bad events out there? And what might that have looked like in reality? Um, hi, Larry. Uh, thanks for asking uh, the hard questions. Um, uh, I, I do think it is it is possible to prepare. First of all, yes, there were many, many warnings. Uh, as with any crisis, you look back and uh, all sorts of people warned about it. 
even at the official level, the um, Bush administration and then the Obama administration both did, um, they recognized this was a problem. They had a nice plan, a beautiful binder, a nice report. It got put on the shelf, uh, you know, in the last scene of the Raiders of the Lost Ark where that, that big government shelf is. Uh, and then forgotten. There was even, you know, national stockpiles, which turned out weren't weren't kept up. So people did think about it, and there are people who think about these things. And as usual, um, uh, it just didn't uh, get implemented. Uh, now you're right. We have to be careful not to fight the last war. I, I think we'll come out of this ready to uh, <clears throat> ready to fight a respiratory virus coming from China. Uh, but the nature of the evolution of these things is that uh, evolution is very crafty and finds its way around all the things you haven't prepared for. Um, so what that just takes is a, um, uh, a, a creative, it's what the military does all the time. Uh, they're very aware of fighting the last war and they're very aware of the, un the unknown unknowns that are out there to get you. Um, but really uh, the problem we face is not the creativity, it's the institutional infrastructure. We're also good at thinking of, oh, just a couple of things we've talked about recently. Oh, we should trace people. Uh, we should let the young people go out to work. Well, who's gonna do that? Um, we don't have the, the institutional bureaucracy that once we decide something is simple, uh, who's gonna go implement that stuff? Uh, like after 9-11. After 9-11, you know, it turned out we had uh, firefighters and police and they didn't know each other's phone numbers. Well, uh, that's the, getting the bureaucracy to be able to move swiftly, I think, is the hard part. Uh, coming up with a, a plan and having, uh, having some people who think about what might be the next thing to come with us, I think that's the easier part. Great. Thanks, John. Uh, this question is from Anonymous to Emil. He says that you mentioned... Um, early and aggressive actions. How early are we talking in comparison to the sorts of lockdowns that we're seeing today? And a big part of this conversation now is about the duration of lockdowns. So what can you, what does your research suggest on, on how long uh, uh, these types of lockdowns were implemented in terms of suppression policies in 1918 and how did that play out? Right. So what the epidemiology literature has done that looked at 1918 was they've constructed measures uh, for, for the speed of intervention, which essentially is when different public health interventions are put in place relative to when the death rate starts uh, accelerating. Um, and so, you know, some places, uh, you know, react only a month after there's an acceleration. Um, and other places, like, you know, for example, Minneapolis is a great example, they react very quickly, uh, even a week before there's an acceleration, because they can see that in, in cities further in the east, uh, death rates are rising, and they know that it's probably going to arrive uh, to, to, to Minnesota, for example, in, in 1918. So, um, of course, being earlier is always going to be better. And I think that's the experience that we've seen uh, in, for example, in Singapore, to some extent, um, in, in South Korea, in Taiwan, that if you can put in place these measures earlier, then you also don't have to take quite as sort of dr dr draconian measures um, as, uh, as, as you would have to do if you can't react uh, quickly. Now, you know, most places are around the world, that's too late. Um, and so the other variable, the other dimension that we looked at is sort of the intensity, which is a combination of the duration, but also what different types of measures were, were put in place. And so most places during the 1918 pandemic had these measures in place, uh, you know, for uh, about a month, maybe a little bit over a month. Uh, and there's substantial variation. Some places uh, have them in place only for a couple of weeks. Other places, you know, go for six, for six weeks. Uh, or, or more. And what we see is that the places that were more conservative 
in the sense uh, that they had more intensive uh, measures in place and measures in place for longer seem to be able to, to, to come out stronger just in terms of you know lower mortality and a healthier economy on the other side. And that I think you know pushes us towards being a little bit on the conservative side of when we start to open up, we want to do so uh, in a way where we're kind of very closely monitoring the evolution of new cases and making sure that we don't uh, allow uh, you know a resurfacing uh, of, of of kind of a rapid rapid spread of of the virus. Um, and so you know that we've already done a lot of or we're doing a lot of work now and opening up too early um, and not leaving these measures in place for for sufficiently long, as I think Anna touched on as well, would in a way um, uh, destroy some of that some of that initial work. Um, so there's both kind of the the speed, but also now the intensity and and the and the duration of it. Is also something that, that that matters, and 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 again, you know, I would say better to err on the conservative side uh, than than to open up too quickly. Great, thanks, Emil. Uh, the next question is from Sandro on Facebook, um, and I think this is mainly directed to Anna. Uh, perhaps we could be a bit clearer on the key concepts being defined here um, when we're talking about mitigation and suppression. So, how would things like school closures be uh, defined? Um, the restrictions on air travel, uh, would those be part of the kind of broader social distancing within mitigation would, or would that stuff be regarded as active suppression? Yes, and I think this is uh, a really good question because we should think very, very carefully what effective mitigation policies should be that will allow at the same time to allow economy to function to some extent. So I would imagine, and you could um, perhaps also look at Scott Gottlieb's uh, report and look at his phase two. What he's saying is that probably we will be able to reopen schools, but we will be discouraging people from flying, from traveling. We will be encouraging people to work from home as much as possible. So the point of mitigation is to be less restrictive than suppression to allow for more, more personal freedoms, but still to limit human contact as much as possible, to slow down the spread of the virus as much as possible. And I think that would also involve a lot of surveillance. If we see a hotspot, we may go to a suppression phase just in this one spot and perhaps limit the travel in and out of the spot. I think this is what is done in China to some extent. Um, but I would imagine that probably schools and kindergartens would be opened just because the cost of homeschooling the kids, the cost that it has on the productivity of working parents is very, very large. And it's not clear. So we know that children have a low risk of dying and they typically have mild cases. So the question is, do kids transmit the virus at very high rates as much as adults? or maybe they transmit at lower rates. So I would imagine that during the mitigation uh, phase, we will reopen the schools, but for the adult population, we will still encourage the adults to work from home as much as possible. But this is a very, very good question that we need to really learn how to be successful during the mitigation phase in terms of stopping or slowing down the spread of the virus, but at the same time, allowing the economic activity to continue as much as possible. John, you wanted to come in on that. Yeah, I, I 
to what Anna said. Um, by having something concrete, I think we can illustrate the point. Um, schools and, and airlines, the choice is not lock them down versus open them up. Just think of a school. There's a there's hundred ways in between lockdown and open up that you can start to operate a school. Uh, you can Every kid's temperature gets taken on their way in. If you've got tests, uh, every teacher gets tested every day as possible. Um, uh, I, it's, um, the sort of the isolating and tracing. Once you found something, if it, you know, you could you could really have an intensive. Teachers are isolated and and, and traced. Uh, if a teacher has you know seen somebody who had it in the last week, that teacher stays home. Uh, there's a whole bunch of interventions there. Airlines, uh, you know, goodbye the middle seat. Uh, um, take everyone's temperature in, in an extreme. If you have tests, everyone who gets on an airline gets tested. Um, the pilots get tested. The, uh, the the flight attendants get tested. Do you clean the airline? Do you clean out the interior of it between every flight or once a day? Um, that's the kind we have to open the economy smart. The problem is that takes detailed protocols. Someone's got to think out. We we economists can think of it in in a minute, but you know, implementing that stuff. Uh, takes time, and that's really the challenge, not lockdown versus open, open smart. Great, and I think we've got another question that's probably best directed to you, John. We've had a few of our um, our libertarian viewers um, suggesting, okay, well, you know, we can open smart, but that introduces other trade-offs for us in terms of our welfare uh, and things that particularly concern many libertarians. If we're going to have a situation where we are testing and tracking people that obviously has surveillance implications if you're going to have things like immunity passports then you're normalizing the idea of um, the government determine who can who can move where dependent on some sort of private health status is that really a road that libertarians want to be going down and why should we perhaps be uh, willing to accept it in this emergency situation this is a hard time to be a libertarian isn't it and uh I am as, as much of a civil libertarian as free market libertarian. Um, God knows we don't want the Chinese surveillance state on us. Uh, but in times of emergency, um, the government has always trampled on both your economic and civil liberties. And the key is to make sure it does so efficiently uh, with transparency, accountability, and that you claw it back when it's all over. Uh, there's going to be a fight about that, uh, yes, because the government discovers that all of these tools are very Chinese government. The tools that are useful for for political control are also useful for um, for public health control, and the U.S. government the tools that are useful for terrorism control, for public health control, uh, also are, are deep infringements on your civil liberties. You face a choice. Uh, we can say our government will not track the location of its citizens. That's a that's a violation of civil liberties. Okay, that's going to cost you a trillion dollars a month uh, in, in economic. And there's the mother of all externalities out here, which is a person who goes out and spreads it to a hundred people. You know, kills his fellow citizens. Um, so uh, both civil and economic liberties are going to get trampled on. There's the, you got to choose which one it is. It's got to be temporary, as it has, uh, you know, throughout history in wars, in pandemics, uh, governments trample on our liberties. Uh, but then, a functioning democracy and society makes sure that that is temporary and claws it back at the end. And and be prepared, us fellow libertarians, to make sure that that is clawed back and limited and subject to oversight and control. Great, thanks, John. Uh, a lot of people are asking about some of the longer run implications of this, particular for, particularly for certain sectors affected. 
um, some of the entertainment industries, uh, movie theaters, for example. Uh, one could imagine, given uh, more and more people are watching movies and and uh, and TV at, at home and with better quality systems at home, given technological improvements, that that might be a, a longer term concern for movie theaters. So I'll perhaps start here with Emil. Did we see from your research any longer run consequences um, by industry as a result of the 1918 uh, pandemic, as far as you're aware? That's a, a great question, and, and it's something that we haven't been able to fully answer yet. What I can say is that in terms of longer term impact, uh, you know, just on the economy itself, um, we need to be prepared for a potentially you know, weaker recovery than we might hope. So there's been some discussion of, well, the economy will just go back to normal when all of this is over, everything will bounce back. That's not what we saw in, in 1918 for a variety of factors. So one, there's you know just the direct impact, not just on mortality, but also on people's longer term uh, health that lowers productivity, um, that makes you know uh, that makes different uh, uh, workers you know accumulate less human capital and so forth. There's even a study by Doug Almond in the Journal of Political Economy from about a decade ago that showed that people who were in utero during the pandemic actually have lower educational attainment and human capital attainment and and and, and income. Uh, in their adult lives. So there are some long-term consequences that we need to be aware of just on the health side. Um, on just the economic side as well, we know that you know there's what economists call propagation of these types of shocks where for a variety of reasons, you know, jobs are gonna get uh, destroyed that are gonna be difficult to, to, to reconnect again. Businesses are gonna come out with weaker balance sheets. Consumers are gonna come out uh, with weaker balance sheets. And we know that that's gonna take time uh, to 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 recover from, um, and that means that you know there, there's uh, potentially a role for government kind of on the other side to help stimulate the economy um, once once kind of the economy is 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 ready to to take off again, um, and that, that we need to do something in terms of the structure of the economy. I think that there's going to be a lot of changes, uh, and some of them you know uh, might even be good. Right? Um, I think some of us are realizing that maybe you know working from home can actually be more productive. Uh, and you know, video conferencing isn't quite as terrible uh, as as we had thought before, or at least we're starting to get used to it. And that might mean that you know we're going to be traveling less, um, which is going to be good for for uh, the environment. It's going to be good for some dimensions of our lives, but you know, it's also going to be tougher on the airline industry. And so there's going to be some adjustments um, in in various ways that we're going to have to uh, expect and think about. And different industries are going to have to react differently to the new environment that we're going to come out on come out with on the other side. Great, thanks Emil. Uh, got a question from Glenn. I'm concerned that we're too reliant on a few experts to make decisions for us. Um, knowledge is decentralized. Can you comment on the trade-offs between having a few people uh, at the top, top-down leaders versus a more widespread diffusion of experimentation of how to uh, reopen safely uh, and at low risk? Do any of you have any thoughts on that? Perhaps John, we'll start with you. I I, um, I don't think the premise is is right. In fact, um, a wonder of, of the U.S. and the Internet is, you know, the fact that we're here. <laughs> uh, the spread of ideas is is fast all around. Yeah, there's, you know, the daily briefings from uh, from Trump and Anthony Fauci and our governors and so forth. Uh, but and especially if you look at what's going on in the medical uh, community, there's just this spirit of enormous uh, in innovation going on uh, and experimentation on 
on handling this thing. So in fact, if anything, we're lacking <laughs> top down uh, sort of the public health uh, things, which are also public health is a state and local, certainly at the implementation level. Uh, it's not federal, it's state and local. Um, so so I, I really don't don't see that in the current situation. Um, Anna, on when you're thinking about cost benefit analysis of this, almost all of the analyses I've seen have compared, you know, what happens to economic output against lives lost or lives saved, sorry. Um, but, you know, as economists, we should think more surely about economic welfare. Um, and economic welfare includes the inherent value of our freedoms and the value of our freedoms in terms of how we use our leisure time as well. So aren't all of these studies vastly underestimating the cost of the shutdowns by just looking at the pure effects on economic output and not a broader conception of our welfare that in, includes our ability to see our loved ones and a whole range of other things that won't be picked up by GDP? Thank you, Ryan. This is a good question. And that's definitely something that people have mentioned to me. And uh, that's something that I'm also seeing that there are other costs which are not easy to quantify. So, for example, people who live alone and who may have some mental health issues, those problems get exaggerated. And uh, in the long run, maybe they will have some adverse effects on those people in the long run. And we're not able to quantify them in a good way right now. So we would try to quantify them in a sense that perhaps a person has a lower output, you know, due to their issues that they have, but there might be some additional effects on this person's well-being, and we just don't really have good models to capture this. But to that, I must also say exactly what Emil said, that uh, some people actually do enjoy being at home. And maybe for some people, that's actually a positive that they get to spend more time with their families. And we have been actually talking a lot about the flexibility in the workplace. So perhaps with this new technology, this experiment, we will find ways to allow people to be more flexible with their jobs and allow them to more, work more effectively from home. So there are different trade-offs that we're not really quantifying at this point very well in all of those cost estimations, cost-benefit estimations. And we should really think about how to quantify all of those negatives and positives better. John, you wanted to come in on that. Yeah, um, yeah the, the question is good, but before it is true. Uh, you know, I'm enjoying my life at home. <laughs> but before we start questioning cost-benefit analysis, I, I think it would be good if if our governments were doing any cost-benefit analysis at all, and in particular, cross-sectional cost-benefit analysis, not just how long does this last, um, but um, what what activities are we shutting down at what cost? Right now, everything is locked down, no matter what its benefit, no matter what its cost. They're sort of essential and non-essential, and that's it. But you can imagine, so a bar is shut down the same way an auto body shop is shut down. Now, I think you can run an auto body shop pretty well without, without spreading the coronavirus. A bar is much harder to run that well. So let's do a little bit of cost-benefit analysis in how we run the shutdown. Yes, it's imperfect. It's not including the benefits to environment, to value at home, and so forth. But but before we criticize it for it not being perfect, I think we need 
you're just we're not doing any of it in a catastrophic way right now. Yeah, one of the things that I've been struck by looking through these lists of non-essential or essential businesses is just how interconnected the economy is and how um, it's very, very difficult actually for policymakers and Friedrich Hayek wouldn't be surprised by this to go through the economy and take into consideration all the different suppliers that even feed into essential industries. So um, I worry that lockdowns by being such a crude measure might make big mistakes in terms of closing down businesses that actually turn out to be indirect suppliers or, or, or direct suppliers to industries that we actually need to be running right now during this emergency. But um, enough about my views. We've got another question from, uh, from Dudley. Um, is not the correct libertarian position to be following Sweden's example, allowing as much business as, as usual um, without government determining uh, which businesses are open and closed and allow people to figure it out their own way? I don't know if any of you have been following um, what Sweden has been doing with this um, closely, um, but I wonder, I'll come to Emil first. Did you look when you were doing your study at how other countries um, approach the influenza pandemic? And was there any suggestive evidence there about different approaches? Right, so on our study of 1918, we haven't looked at other, other countries yet, but we should probably do that going forward. In terms of Sweden, um, it's a bit close to home because I'm actually Danish. And so I've been following very closely what's been happening in Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. And it is interesting and very surprising that in Sweden, the approach seems to have been, as, as, as uh, the question uh, alluded to, a much more sort of laissez-faire type of approach, whereas uh, Denmark and Norway acted you know, much uh, more swiftly and also aggressively. And I think you know, what you're seeing uh, with that experience is that because there are so many externalities associated uh, with, uh, you know, with the spread of a virus, what you're seeing in Sweden is that not only is mortality uh, going up, um, but people are naturally, you know, pulling back anyway. So I haven't seen any measures, uh, for example, that the economy is doing better in Sweden relative uh, to Denmark. And when you don't have a coordinated response, um, and I completely agree with John that we need to figure out how to really calibrate these responses in a smart way so that we get the most health benefits for the least economic cost. But when you don't have a coordinated response, um, because of all these, you know, externalities, um, you actually can end up, you know, have end up with sort of much worse average welfare. So I think, you know, the comparison of Sweden versus, you know, the other Scandinavian countries will be instructive going forward. Um, but I am a bit, uh, I'm a bit less uh, convinced that this, the Sweden route is the way to go. Okay, I've got a question here from David Scott. Um, he asks, how can we better tailor suppression mitigation efforts to the actual conditions in individual communities rather than blanket shutdowns um, everywhere? And I wonder if I might get Anna to answer this, just in the sense that, you know, when we're modeling this kind of stuff, it's obviously a lot easier to model big policy changes and, and make big assumptions about the effectiveness of suppression as against a, you know, a, a big pool of mitigation policies that we can easily model. Uh, one of the difficulties with, with modeling this is, of course, you miss out lots of the marginal things that you could do to open up businesses that are low risk, that perhaps wouldn't get picked up in those two uh, different policy pots. So I just wonder if you have any thoughts about the centralization question and, and other ways that we might approach this. 
Okay, thank you very much for this question. That's uh, a very good question. And uh, I agree. I think some countries, I've read maybe Germany in particular, is thinking about what's the best way to reopen the economy. And uh, it could be, in fact, uh, possible to reopen parts of the country, especially they're thinking perhaps we will start with some rural communities where the population density is quite low. People don't really come a lot into contact with each other, not like in crowded cities. So maybe we'll start by reopening some rural communities where we don't have a lot of new cases, perhaps not a lot of people come in from the outside and uh, travel out of those communities and start there and see how that works. And we will actually have to do a lot of surveillance just to make sure that uh, the number of cases does not spike again in those communities. So we have to be very, very careful about how we go through this mitigation phase. We have to be kind of flexible in terms of what we're doing and adjusting what we're doing to the current situation. Again, be driven entirely by data and not by the prior decision, okay, we're in the mitigation phase right now. This is how it has to be from now on. But I really think it's totally reasonable to start reopening some parts, some geographical parts of the United States and then move on to other parts. Just be very, very gradual about this. Yeah, I wonder whether um, both Emil and John, I'll come to Emil first. You have any thoughts about what a reopening might look like? My central expectation is that it's going to be a, a gradual loosening of restrictions when we do see them, possibly with circuit breakers so if certain things happen restrictions will be reapplied and probably on a kind of first in last out basis so some of the big activities where you get big groups of people that were closed quite early will be opened uh, last i wonder if there's any historical uh, pedigree to that type of approach and then say so if emma will like, answer that first and then i'll come to john for some thoughts afterwards what what will this look like in terms of how we go about reopening do you think Right, I think what you're seeing in already in, in different countries that are contemplating the reopening is that we want to take, you know, I think that's what your first in, uh, last out uh, uh, alludes to that we want to take a very gradual approach and we want to think about well, you know, what are what are the, you know, lower risk and higher benefit economic benefit types of sectors where we want to reopen. I like John's example of the auto shop versus the bar. Uh, you know, sports activities that's uh, with, you know, in major crowded stadiums, that's probably going to be something that's going to come much later. Um, but maybe, you know, playing sports games without fans, for example, um, might come uh, earlier. So I think we need to have this grad gradualist uh, approach where we think about the benefits in, in each sector. Um, and that our job is going to be much easier. It, the more data and the more information we have on the ground uh, about, you know, how uh, how different communities are doing. And that's, you know, of course, testing, 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 um, but also other sorts of data. I think we can actually uh, be quite creative right now. Um, I've seen, for example, you know, you can get a sense of how many cases there are uh, in different communities also by, uh, you know, looking at how many searches uh, on Google there are for different types of symptoms. So even if we don't have uh, testing ramped up, we can maybe draw on other sorts of data. In Italy, they're also asking people to submit uh, data on their health uh, and uh, uh, symptoms uh, like their temperature um, voluntarily so that public health officials have a sense of, you know, how different cities 
uh, are, are doing in terms of, of, of new cases and whether cases are accelerating in certain places. So the better data we have, uh, the better we can calibrate the, the reopening uh, of different regions of, of, of the economy, different sectors of the economy. Um, and that's going to make, make kind of the transition out of this lockdown uh, smoother. Um, so that's, that's ideally what I would like to see in the reopening. Great, John, do you have thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, um, you asked what it will like uh, be like. Uh, so that's what it will be like and what it should be like. Um, we're all libertarians, so that means we're pretty cynical. It'll be a bloody mess. It'll be political. It'll be done at the last moment. Uh, and, uh, heaven help us. What it should look like is a combination of smart, targeted, data-driven, uh, locally implemented public health plus well-done cost-benefit reopening. Uh, and in response to the earlier question about the private sector, you know, the private sector was doing darn well with this. Uh, airlines saw that they weren't getting any customers and immediately, you know, we've got HEPA filters, we're wiping down our planes. Uh, the, the, only the business knows how to run that business in a virus-safe way. So um, we, we can't wait for bureaucracies to come up with a plan. Here's how to run an airline safely. That'll take 10 years. Uh, I think the right way is a general set of guidelines and then a business that wants to reopen um, at least can say, here's what we're planning to do. Is that okay? That's kind of like halfway in between. Explore some of the Hayekian uh, knowledge that's uh, widely dispersed. Uh, but that's got to come with these, the smart, targeted public health part, which is that, that's where we're going to be slow. Great. Thanks, John. Um, a few people have asked questions about the nature of testing, and perhaps we'll go to Anna with this one. Um, of course, testing is important, but isn't the true unknown variable here the number of people who are infected but without symptoms? And until we know that, we won't really know um, what the right approach is. That seems to be the key variable. Um, how much would your results, perhaps, Anna, change uh, if that were different in a significant way? Uh, this is a very, a very, very good question because we know uh, from the data right now, the data says that about 40% of people are asymptomatic. And by now we know that asymptomatic people also transmit the infection to others. So the key to slowing down the spread of the virus is to be able to identify those asymptomatic people so that they stay at home, they self-quarantine, they don't spread the infection further. So I suggest once we have plentiful tests and once those tests could be done quickly, I suggest we just test everybody who doesn't have immunity yet, perhaps every week. So every week a person will get their status if they're already immune, if they're perhaps sick right now. And if they're sick, they will preemptively self-quarantine. So that would work better than measuring a person's temperature because before you develop the symptoms, you could be already infecting people for quite some time. So having widespread testing, even without the symptoms is really key to slowing down the spread of the virus. And if we could remove those asymptomatic people from infecting others, that would greatly affect the model on the pandemic spread. Then we will really greatly slow down the spread and we will be much more successful in the mitigation phase. So we could reopen the economy a lot sooner potentially. 
Great, and John, you you have some thoughts on that. I just want to add a couple of cents on testing. We we have this vision of um, we'll get recombinant DNA testing that we can that will be cheap and simple and test everybody with perfect accuracy every morning, and and that'll solve the problem. That would if it comes, uh, but that's a long way away. Uh, there's much there's stuff we could do right now. You have to realize. You need a perfect test if, if you've got a patient and you want to know what to do with them if we had treatments. Uh, for the public health purpose, you don't need a perfect test. First of all, the most important thing is to find a, a swath of people who aren't, um, who aren't sick. So there's this idea of group testing. Mix the samples, test the, test the mixed sample, and then if it comes out negative, you got 50 people with one test who you know are, are safe. Uh, there's all sorts of tests that aren't recombinant DNA tests that we could be doing right now. Again, it's about the probabilities. You don't have to make sure every single sick person doesn't go out. If you can get half the sick people and make them at home, you've just cut the reproduction rate in half. All we have to do is get the reproduction rate under one and we're fine. Why are we not now today? Everybody take your temperature with a, a web-enabled thermometer, send that in. Uh, that's not gonna get everybody who's sick, but it would keep home a lot of people who are sick. Um, you know, there's, there's this very simple kind of, you know, report your symptoms to an app, uh, you know, figure out what your chance of having it is with that. You can do a whole lot of testing with that. In, in China, they have, you, you walk into an airport and, and there's this screen that has an infrared monitor and it takes everyone's temperature. Well, why in the world don't we have that at every airport and public place? That's testing. It's not perfect, but it bends the probabilities. And that's the, for the public health purpose. That's all you need to do. We could have been doing that months ago. Great. Um, John Garren's got a question. A couple of speakers spoke of the importance of traditional public health practices or well-calibrated health interventions. Do you get the sense that outside of the hotspots, many states are actually following this or are some overreacting because they're seeing what's happening in the hotspot states? Um, I don't know who's the best person to potentially answer that question. Um, Emil, do you have any thoughts on that? I, you know, given how limited testing we've seen in lots of parts of the country, um, I think it's 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 very difficult for local officials necessarily to know exactly uh, how they should be reacting. Some places are almost certainly overreacting, um, and some places have also, you know, underreacted and and not reacted quickly enough. And again, that that goes to the point that John was making earlier that you know we 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 need to have uh, some way of gauging, you know, roughly what the what the share of cases are, what the probabilities are, so that we can try to, you know, I like that phrase, bend, bend those probabilities. And it's very hard for local officials to do that in, in the right way if they don't have the data. So there's almost certainly places where we know for, you know, climatic reasons, for reasons uh, due to differences in humidity, where the transmission is not quite as, as high as in other parts of the country, where they may have, have, have reacted uh, too strongly. And that's, of course, uh, you know, uh, bad for the economy. So again, that that only speaks to the need for more testing and also more types of other forms of data that can be useful for predicting, uh, you know, roughly what the sample uh, shares are of people who have uh, have the virus and people who don't. I've got a question here from Brian on Facebook. He says, um, shouldn't the need for these um, extensive lockdowns don't they signify that a failure of education almost because shouldn't we be given the amount of information at our disposal 
Uh, shouldn't we as individuals, businesses, consumers be ready to make our own risk assessments uh, in regard to the uh, potential threat of the virus? Uh, John? Um, well, this is the classic case of an externality. My own risk assessment is, yeah, I don't feel so bad. Uh, if I want to go out and do what I want to do, heck, it doesn't make any difference to me. So uh, fortunate, unfortunately, you know, this is the classic case where you need some public action. Given that fact, it's, it's actually remarkable how well people did, uh, people and businesses did before the lockdowns. Um, it's not like we were all just kind of sitting around doing nothing. But uh, uh, you, you can't, the nature of a pandemic is uh, there, it just takes a couple of irresponsible people a couple of ir irresponsible groupings, and next thing you know, it's, it's exploding. It's, it's all in the tails. Um, if, if 99 out of us are good and don't transmit it, but one person gives it to 100 other people, then, it, then, then you're back on, on uh, spreading the virus. Um, so uh, sorry, it, it's not going to be that simple. And Anna, you wanted to come in on that point. Yeah, I wanted to come in. So uh, people keep talking about super spreaders. It would be really good to try to understand who are those super spreaders? What is the nature of those super spreaders? Do they shake a lot of hands? What, what is it that they do? So I, I think as long as we understand, maybe those people don't even know themselves that they're super spreaders. So we just that uh, it would really help us understand who they are because as John said, it's kind of in the tails. Okay, I've got one final question, which I'm going to ask all of you to comment on briefly. Um, and it kind of underpins a lot of the questions that we've been getting. Obviously, in crisis times like this, um, we give up or are asked to give up a lot of our economic and civil liberties. Uh, but we know looking through the 20th century that often those, those liberties don't come back full and wholesome after the end of crises. Uh, in this situation, though, we're also being you know, hold in at home and perhaps many people will recognize some of the value of our freedoms as consumers and, and being able to interact with people on a daily basis and, and how many people around the, the world uh, don't have those freedoms and we perhaps take them for granted. So what do you see in 30 seconds each as the long-term consequences for the prospects of, of liberty and, and, and our freedoms? John first. Uh, well, to be a libertarian is to be like a Chicago Cubs fan. Just wait till next year. You're, you're always hopeful. Uh, and, and I do see hope in this. You know, as I, I read some of our uh, liberal and left-wing commentators, a lot of them are shocked, shocked to find out that the government is so incompetent. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, this is a useful lesson for them. Uh, so so I, I think there is hope. And, and I think um, <clears throat> such a tradition of civil liberties are trampled in times of, of crisis and then clawed back afterwards. Uh, so, so I think we understand that as a democracy. Uh, it's going to be hard, as you know, the NSA was doing uh, bad things after terrorism. Uh, but, but I don't think it's hopeless. And I, I think this wake-up call to the general incompetence of government has, has uh, lots of people are noticing. Great. Anna? Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting time. I think we will learn a lot of lessons what my colleagues always tell each other, we will learn how to use the internet, maybe won't have to have so many in-person meetings. We will learn how to work more efficiently online, perhaps in the longer run, it will bring some efficiencies into the economy. 
And as I already mentioned, maybe we will come up with good uh, flexibility policies for working families. So that will help. And in terms of personal freedoms, I would say that uh, everybody understands the sacrifices that we have to make right now. And we know that this is just relatively short term. Eventually, we will regain all of our freedoms back. And Emma, you've got the final word. Right. Well, I, I agree with a, a lot of what's already been said. I think, you know, one of the other things that we're learning too in this crisis is that, you know, in many ways, our economy has become kind of hyper uh, individualized, uh, and um, and and this experience is also kind of uh, showing to us how interconnected we are, uh, you know, as a society, and how we actually this is a crisis where we really have to come together and coordinate, and where we're taking actions, you know, that might be bad for ourselves, um, but where we're doing it because we know. Uh, that we're uh, mitigating the crisis by, for example, reducing the transmission of disease. So I think it it's it's a it's a lesson in in the values of the freedoms that we have, but also you know in the responsibilities that we have to our fellow uh, our fellow citizens, uh, both you know directly in terms of uh, mitigating the spread of the virus, but I think also more more generally in how our economy is actually highly interconnected, and we really are very dependent on each other, and so we have to figure out a way to make that uh, work. Um, Thanks a lot for having us, Ryan. No, it's great. Thank you, guys. Thank you, John, Anna, and Emil. Uh, to those of you who submitted questions, which I didn't have time to get to, I've completely deluged with questions uh, on my screen. I apologize. Uh, for those who had some technical difficulties at the start of the transmission, the full video of the event will be up on the Cato website very soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again to our speakers, and stay safe out there.